Hi friends, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And the project is, as always, to work through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. You're very welcome, whether you're here for the first time or whether you've been along since the very beginning. And if you are here for the first time, then why not consider hitting that subscribe button and make sure you never miss another single episode and take the opportunity to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily life. So having arrived here, you can join in as we pick up from where we left off last time, or you can choose to go right back to the very beginning, episode one, and just work through together with us the entire Bible at the pace it suits you. So with that said, we'll pick up where we left off last time and do hang on at the end and I'll update you on a few ways that you can connect to this ministry and access lots more other free teaching and Bible study resources. Bye-bye for now. Okay, people, we're picking up exactly where we left off last time when we thought about this passage when Jesus was teaching on how to respond when someone sins against you. And this is the second step in that response that we're looking at today. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to reread part of what we looked at last time and link it in with what we're going to cover today. So let's pick up last time and I'll just reread the text for you. So initially we heard last time that you should go on your own and just speak to the person and try and reconcile and make them aware of your perspective in it. And then he's saying step two. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two or three agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by their Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am in the midst of them. But what is step two? which then we have to really drop back to verse 16, which is why I read it for you again, where Jesus says that if they don't hear what you're saying to them, then take one or two more people as witnesses and go back and discuss it again. You see, if you do the first thing, there's no guarantee it doesn't mean that the person will receive you and accept what you're saying, which of course implies that they don't repent and they don't agree with you and they don't change their position. And they certainly don't apologize, they just stick to their story or they may just see it from that point of view. And in my experience, that's usually what happens. What people tend to do is when anything that they perceive as a fault is pointed out, they actually tend to deny it and sometimes might even try and blame somebody else, maybe even you. Now that's nothing new. This technique started with Adam when he said, it's the woman you gave me, Lord. It's not my fault. It's your fault for sending me this woman. You know, many would say that this is the number one psychological problem of the human race, what some people call blame shifting. And we're all to a degree guilty of it. 
I know I know myself that I know how to do it and I've done it. And sadly, I'm still inclined to do it today or certainly to think and respond in that way initially if I don't monitor myself closely. But let me say blame shifting is about the worst thing you can do in terms of when it comes to the terms having good human relationships. But the truth of the matter is some people will not hear you no matter what you say to them. Uh, no matter how many times you say it, if you go to them and confront them with an issue where you feel they're at fault, or in this case that they've sinned against you, it's very likely they're not going to hear you. In fairness, it may be just because they grew up in an environment where they were constantly criticised by a parent or by parents that they've developed a defensive attitude in life. And they've done that in reality in order so that they can feel safe and survive in the world. But Matthew 16 says, if the attitude and the response isn't receptive, then if he won't hear you, as he says, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So if they don't listen to you, Jesus simply says, at that point, you go back again, and this time you take someone else with you. Now what Jesus is doing here is, without question, alluding to a verse in Deuteronomy chapter 19, where Moses laid down the stipulation that in order to prove a case, you need to have two or three witnesses. Now we're assuming at this point that someone has sinned against you, remember, and that you have proof of this. You're not just going based on feelings, you're going with some level of proof and therefore refusing to acknowledge or accept that proof. So what you're doing now is you're taking someone else to demonstrate that you have followed, in a sense, this godly procedure. In fact, you're taking something to verify exactly what's going on. Some people who will hear both sides of the situation. So this no longer becomes a he said, she said situation, and it's not just your word against theirs. I think we have here something which in some ways mirrors a modern technique that's used in addiction situations where a family do what they call an intervention. That is, when someone has a problem that's affecting other people and they don't seem to have insight that they have that problem, they take the others with them, the other people affected in the family and friends, and they try and sit down with that person in the room and try and get them to listen to how their actions have affected everybody. It's interesting to me that this technique was actually developed by Alcoholics Anonymous, who of course were entirely born out of a Christian response to the problems alcohol was creating in society. I wonder if they had this scripture in mind when they created this way of approaching and confronting people. The bringing together of witnesses and doing this, what they call an intervention, was usually applied, of course, to people who had an addiction, but more specifically, those people who weren't willing to acknowledge it. So perhaps that's a sort of an idea of what's going on here. You're going to take several people with you, perhaps two or three, so that you convince that person that there is a problem that needs to be dealt with. All right, but suppose even that doesn't work, even that second step doesn't work, then what should you do? Well, that takes us to step three. So step one, remember, was go and see them on your own and discuss it. Step two was, if that doesn't lead to a resolution, take someone with you and go and discuss it again. And now we're down to step three, where Jesus says, and if he or she refuses to hear, tell it to the church. Now, let's be clear, this is not about people standing up in front of a church on a Sunday morning and saying, this person has sinned against me. That would just lead to chaos. 
No, I think it's helpful to look at how the church community dealt with the problem in Acts 15. They had a problem and they sent it to the church at Jerusalem to solve it. The chapter in its entirety suggests to me that what you should begin to do is take the problem and allow it to be discussed more widely within the leadership of the church. Now, as I've said before, this is one of the passages that wasn't directly, rather indirectly, leads to some teaching on potential church discipline. But if we look at the actual chapters that specifically talks about this, it always frames this type of going back to the church or the leadership of a church. It frames it within a framework of trying to spiritually restore people. So what I'm, suggest, what I'm going to suggest is that the church, this third step, should only ever be taken when the first two steps have been exhausted. But at that point, it's appropriate maybe to take it to the eldership or the spiritual leadership, to a small group within that leadership perhaps, and see if they can solve it, if at all possible. Because it's best done, yes it's the church community that is addressing it, but it's best done behind the scenes without it getting more complicated or being circulated more widely. In other words, let spiritually minded leaders deal with the problem. But I think we could go wider than and say that there are spiritually minded leaders that you could find to sit down with and just talk about the situation in general and get some advice. But remember, you're only in this position because they haven't been willing to address it in steps one or two. So it's telling us if they refuse to hear what you're saying, then tell it to the church. Not meaning the entire church, but the spiritual leadership or those with authority to make decisions on spiritual matters. And then it says, even if they don't respond to that, let them be like a heathen or a tax collector. Now, this is usually interpreted to mean that what you to do is to excommunicate that person. But friends, I don't believe that's even close to what this passage is teaching. Think about it. Even at that time, did one excommunicate heathen and tax collectors? In fact, Matthew himself was a tax collector. No, this is, in my research, I've come to understand that this is a Jewish expression that means that they simply did not sit down and eat with them and fellowship with them. That's what you did with non-believers. So from the Jewish religious leader's point of view, in the first century, you didn't sit down and eat with them. So it seems to me that what this line is referring to something when it's carried over to deal with believers, with Christian church discipline, it's something that, that is much more simple and straightforward than that. Let me read for you 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14. Make special note of anyone who does not obey our instructions in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. You do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. So what you're doing is you're sort of gently marking out by not associating with them in the same way, which would include not eating with them, that you're not actually counting them as an enemy. You're not excommunicating them as some suggest but you're putting a sort of Christian social pressure on them to question themselves as why they're being admonished by their brothers and sisters in Christ. Now many godly Bible teachers, people that I respect, in fact my own pastor that I, I sat under for 20 years have suggested that what they believe this really amounts to is simply not allowing 
these people to participate in the Lord's table in the church service. Not that you exclude them from the fellowship, not that you exclude them or excommunicate them from the actual church, but you simply refuse to allow them to participate in the Lord's table, which is the idea of not eating and having fellowship with them. You're not treating them as an enemy, but you're simply admonishing them with a discipline as a brother or sister in Christ. This ties in with me in a sense indirectly with Corinthians chapter 6 where Paul said not to take each other to court over dispute with a brother. In other words, the point is try and allow the church fellowship to deal with it from within. But in this, in this text, he then uh, Jesus himself says in the following verses, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything and they ask for it, it will be done for them by the Father in heaven. Now, I think that these specific verses relate to the church, the Christian community. And we need to just consider what it is they use because they're often misunderstood and misrepresented, these verses. Binding and loosing. As I've explained before when we looked at this in chapter 16, this term was used by the Jewish teachers to mean that the teachers of the law could bind and loose, meaning that they could prohibit some things and permit some things. So binding and loosing is simply nothing more than the church deciding by their understanding and their interpretation of the scriptures and the will and word of God, what should be considered right and what should be considered wrong, what should be prohibited and what should be permitted. Now the fact that this has already been done and in a sense decided in heaven indicates that what the church is doing is by abiding by the word of God they are going to permit or forbid something but depending on what the scriptures say. So what Jesus is saying here is that when the church makes its decisions not to do it they've got to do it and they've got to in a sense have heaven's mandate behind them They've got to be doing it according to scriptural precepts. This verse gets quoted all the time by people who are just desperately trying to get an answer to prayer. And they try and claim it. And they say that two of us are agreed on this and therefore it will be done. But this is not here teaching about prayer at all. This is not talking about two Christians, even with the best intention, arbitrarily coming together and deciding something that they want should happen and asking God to bind it so it is. By doing that, they're in effect, they're actually ripping it from its context. The whole context here is about discipline within the church community and family. And it's saying what the church must be decided based upon the scriptural precedence. And they can decide under that guidance, they are in a position to decide what should be permitted and what should be prohibited. And it is within that context, when it's talking about two or three people, it's talking about the spiritual leadership coming together and agreeing what should be done. And then it concludes by saying, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I will be in the midst. So what I think really is going on here is the Lord is simply promising that if you do what I tell you to do, based on the scripture, I will bless it and you will have heaven behind that decision. All right, that takes us down to the end of the passage. And I'd like to wrap up and I'd like to summarize 
because it, it really it's relatively straightforward. This passage in the main simply says three things. Three things you're to do if someone sins against you. Number one, go along and speak with them. Number two, if that doesn't work, take someone with you and speak to them again. And then three, take it to the church. That's not the whole church, the spiritual leadership of the church, and let them discuss it and let them decide what should be done. But step three should be taken if you've exhausted the first two steps. So I just want to finish off today by making a couple of observations about this. Firstly, offences with people and between people are going to happen. It's absolutely going to happen. Being a Christian does not inoculate us from someone sinning against us. And also recognising that Christians are not perfect, we're just striving to be like Christ and we will make mistakes is very helpful because it could be us who do it just like other people. And another truth I get out of this passage is this tells me that this sort of thing is very likely, entirely likely, to happen. And even Jesus in his response here, clearly by having these three steps, it's telling us that even if you take these steps, it's not guaranteed. You can't be guaranteed that they're going to work. At no point does it say it guarantees it's going to work. And if you think about it, it's common sense because that's why at the end of step one, he says, if it doesn't work, then try step two. And if that doesn't work, go to step three. And if that doesn't even work, then leave it to the church to decide. So we need to recognize the fact that sometimes even following these godly steps will not work. As a younger Christian, I always thought I was probably naive to think that if you took these steps and tried to deal with these difficult issues, that thing that it would work out. But I've since learned that it often doesn't. We might say more often than not it doesn't because people generally won't budge. Some people get what the Bible calls hard-hearted and they won't budge. And it's such a factor that we can find within the New Testament that even Paul and Barnabas, they had a conflict and they separated from each other. And we never hear from Barnabas again. And these are two of the most spiritual people in the early church. So it does happen. And sometimes the godly way to address it is just to separate. If you've tried and gone through all the steps and all the phases and you've genuinely tried to bring peace and reconciliation, sometimes it's just better that you go your separate ways. But I want to close and say a final word about what's going on in this passage and what I think it's really trying to tell us. I've wrestled with this passage because when I looked at it in detail, particularly this time in the preparation from this, I was kind of scratching my head and saying, why is this being brought up here? And how does it fit within the chapter it's really teaching on relationships? And of course, I recognized that the danger of any, one of the potential shortfalls of any approach to scripture, particularly expositional is, you tend to have to stop and break at certain points and go at a certain pace. You are and can be in danger of separating it from the wider context. I guess you could superficially say that this advice here is about how to deal with a relationship when it breaks down. So I think within the greater text, it's, it's saying when these sort of things happen, you've just got to try and go deal with it. But I have another observation to make, and I actually think it is the single most important thing I'm going to say about what's going on here. I think to fully understand this, you have to do, as I've said, to hold it within the entire context of this whole chapter on Jesus teaching about relationships. Back in verse 12 to 14, listen to what Jesus said then. 
What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine in the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that wandered off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. So, of course, the parable of the lost sheep is nearly always taught as an individual parable. And it's a great and wonderful parable in that way. But it's interesting that it belongs within this wider context of this passage. And Jesus is ending this passage by saying, what you've got to think about is you've got to think about other people and put them first and try and restore them when they fall away. Because we are to be like the Son of Man and he is the one who came to seek and save that which is lost. So what I believe he's saying is when you follow it on from this parable of the lost sheep, he's actually saying if someone goes astray, which in this case is because they've sinned against you, then go after them and try and restore them. If someone sins against you, you should go to them and say to them, please, my friend, listen to me. But go with them with the same attitude that Jesus would have done to go and seek and save that which was lost or in potential danger of being lost. Going after them is nothing to do with proving that you're right and they're wrong. Going after them and speaking to them should wholly be about trying to get them restored. And maybe in that conversation recognize that you at some level are at fault or at least participated in this, and that you need that restoration as well. So ultimately, the approach about this should be about the pastoral care of the other person. So think about that for a minute. It's very important. You see, if this was about me, and I was the one who went to a person and they wouldn't hear me, then even if I took someone else and they wouldn't hear me, what would be the biblical thing to do? Would it be just to leave them and abandon them? No, because it's all about the other person. I'm not meant to be going to try and get vindicated and prove I was right and they were wrong. It's about restoring the relationship with that other brother or sister in Christ. And by doing so, trying to get them and that relationship restored to the Lord. It should always be always about the other person. And that's the key in a sense to all relationships, isn't, isn't it? When you think about yourself, and think about yourself only and focus on yourself, that's when you're in danger of getting into conflict. But when you think about the other person, that's when you're headed, always headed in the direction of resolution. I submit to you that the real problem that lies behind this is that too many people, too many of us, even Christians, walk around thinking about ourselves and not about the other people. And I have concluded that this teaching is an extension actually of the previous paragraph, the parable of the lost sheep. You see, the difference between a spiritual and a non-spiritual community is not whether conflict exists, because conflicts are going to exist, but rather in the attitude towards them. The spiritual maturity of the people and the community is seen with how they approach to handling confrontation when it happens. When conflict is seen as an opportunity to draw more fully on our spiritual resources, we have the making of a great godly spiritual community. In other words, how we handle conflict individually and collectively determines the level of spiritual maturity we will achieve both in our lives and in our local church communities. 
So if you want to deal with conflict, if you want to deal with the potential situations when someone has sinned against you or someone has sinned against another person, then in a Christ-like manner, your role is to help that other person restored to where they ought to be spiritually. And that is done in a way. And how graciously and how gently you approach that actually determines your level and is an indication of your individual spiritual maturity. So take heed. Okay, people, that's it for today. Hope you find that helpful. I would remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast wherever you're getting your podcast from, whatever podcast provider you're using. And that also within the episode notes of the podcast, there will be a transcript every time of what I've said, as well as links to other places and ways in which you can uh, connect with this ministry and have access to other free Bible teaching and Bible study resources. Some in the form of more structured discipleship type courses. Now, if you're not seeing those active links of that transcript and you'd like to see that, then because some of the, the big podcast providers do block links to other places out of, out of the episode notes, then just always know that you can visit the podcast where it's hosted at the Bible Project Podcast. .buzzsprite.com where you'll find all those great resources available to you. So with that said, I'd just like to thank you so much. Thank each and every one of you for joining. This week this podcast passed a real milestone in the fact for the first time it passed 250,000, a quarter of a million daily downloads. Isn't that amazing? Listen to in 167 countries now around the world. So thank you for joining me. Thank you for supporting me by just making the decision to make the study of the Bible part of your rhythm of your daily lives. And I do hope you'll be back again with me tomorrow. Well, tomorrow it will be for me, whatever day it happens to be for you, because you're very free to do this at whatever pace that suits you. But I'll see you on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.